0: To Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choice. At least it's typically how it goes. Today we have ourselves a returning guest. Uh, you may have remembered him from our Paul Verhoeven episode, and uh more recently, uh probably the most prolific writer for cinemaduel.com <laughs> that we have these days. Uh Chris and I are very psyched to bring uh, to bring back to the podcast, Mister Dan Morris. Dan, how are you doing today?
1: Doing okay. It is a as as you can all thankfully because nobody can see me on video, but it is a very bright day in Florida, and I'm doing okay today. Thank you for asking, Joan. How are you? How are you both doing today?
0: Uh, well, we are just coming out of an incredibly protracted but intense deep freeze uh where we're hitting like actual like typical winter pretending that climate change is in the thing temperatures uh so i'm glad that we're just sort of like just past the edge of that and uh uh we're starting to see the sunlight again chris (laughs) how about yourself
2: Well, here in uh, Long Island, New York, it is 40 degrees. It is February 26th as of this recording, and we have still not had a single snowfall. (laughs) So, uh, on the one hand, I am happy. On the other hand, you know, kind of miss a little bit of that, but uh, we're getting a little bit of seasonal weather here and there. Otherwise, I am doing just fine and looking forward to talking about uh, a trio of uh, interesting movies (laughs) this month which I think is going to kick off a theme of us picking not so super popular films from super popular directors.
0: <laughs> and and in my defense, I don't necessarily think that is the specific intention, but I think for some filmmakers, we want to just watch movies that we haven't seen of theirs. And that potentially is going to lead us to some, sometimes that actually like, sometimes that works great. And in in some cases, well, you know, we have a fun podcast where we talk to each other, and that's why we like doing the podcast more than uh, just about anything else. Um, Mr. Dan, uh, I believe that uh, you staked your claim pretty early on into our uh, movie uh, chatting history about wanting to do an episode on the films of David Cronenberg. So would you care to talk to us just a little bit before we get into it yes. about your love of David Cronenberg?
2: And and, and would you, Dan, also state, <laughs> without giving away what films we're going to be covering, when you envisioned having a podcast episode about the work of David Cronenberg, did you envision us talking about these particular films that we're going to talk about? Maybe one of
1: them.
2: Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so last time I was on
1: the podcast, I have to do a retraction. I said, uh, Paul Verhoeven was my favorite director. And then last year, as I was getting excited for the movie crimes of the future, I ended up spending most of the year listening to not listening to watching most of Cronenberg's filmography. And I'm like, dear God, it's Cronenberg Cronenberg's my favorite director living today. I mean, he's, he's phenomenal. Um, I, when we were putting a, our listeners have not looked. We all put um, our hypothetical sight and sound ballots. And when I was putting mine together, there were three directors I had to have on my ballot. Um, one was Tarkovsky, Andre Tarkovsky, because Tarkovsky's, it's Tarkovsky. Mm-hmm. Um, I put Claire Denis on there because right now I'm neck deep in watching Claire Denis movies. She's a phenomenal director and just a late discovery in life that I I'm like, I have to put her on this list because one, I don't have too many women on my list, but also she's again, a phenomenal director that I feel is worthy of being on a site sound list. And then the last director I had to put on there because one, I have two shirts uh, of, his, of him. The other I wore on the last podcast um, is David Cronenberg. And when I was writing about Videodrome for the, for Cronen um, for my site and sound list, he, I, Firmly believe, and uh, hilariously, none of the movies we're going to be talking about, spoiler everyone, are any of his horror movies. The one might be considered a horror movie. (laughs) We may vary on which one it is, Uh, but I feel no other filmmaker since Murnau, and I wrote this in my piece on Videodrome, has redefined what horror movies can be or created their own visual language for horror movies like David Cronenberg and going back through Cronenberg's movies last year. It's just like, they're so thematically rich. You can come back to them at any point and you're just, they're just as amazing as they were the first time you watched them, his best work. And even his work, that's not as not even work that I'm not as in love with. I still get something out of watching those movies. He's just a brilliant filmmaker that just has such a unique voice. And he just has such provocative things to say about our relationship with technology, our relationship with ourselves and commenting on the, you know, the end of the 20th century, even today, if we're, we're not going to talk about crimes of the future, his most recent film, but I feel like that says so much about the 21st century as well. Like he's, he's a phenomenal filmmaker and he's, Honestly, he should be on the sight and sound list because his film, any there any of his films, at least from the 80s, I feel are worthy of being the greatest films of all time. Maybe not The Dead Zone, um, <laughs> which I do like, but I feel like, and I'll get into this with some of the movies that one of the movies we're going to talk about, but his films are phenomenal. Uh, they just say so much. I
0: would tend to agree. And I also kind of want to get uh, a bit of overview for Chris as well as like, what like big picture, where are you at with Cronenberg?
2: Big picture for me. I mean, I, I came to Cronenberg, relatively early. Uh, I think I saw the fly, uh, in theaters first run. So I think that's where, like I had known about him before, because you couldn't get away back then as you were going into video stores and you were seeing all the amazing VHS covers, seeing Videodrome, right. And, 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 and seeing things yeah. like that. But the fly was really my first e- exposure. And from there, um, it, Definite love affair. I think I, mine is somewhat more tempered than Dan's, um, as as much as most of my op- opinions when it comes to stuff. But um, he, I, the thing that I really saw coming out of these three films, um, two of which I had never seen before, one of which I had seen first run, and we'll talk about that when we get to it because it's probably the largest conversation piece. Um, I was reminded again of what a master craftsman he is as a director. Yeah. I 100% agree on, you know, constructing a unique visual language, um, and it, I mean, so much of that, I think, is embodied in um, just where he came out of. I, Cronenberg, to my mind, and you can probably chime on this better than I could, John, is a uniquely Canadian filmmaker. I love how his... Films breathe, how they feel. I love that. You know, similar to like people like Lynch, there is a long-standing set of folks mm. that he works with. Whether it's Howard Shore for music, although yeah. a huge <laughs> divergence in one of these yeah. films that we'll talk about, um, Denise Cronenberg, right from a production design and things like, like that. Yeah. Um, I I I love that there is something very personal yeah. and craftable about his films, even when they're not as successful for me as they might be for others. We'll talk about one film in particular that I think is is gorgeous and kind of a visual triumph, but left me somewhat empty. Because um, I think he works best when he has something very large and thematic to chew on and something that he wants to express. Um, yeah. But, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, is he my favorite living filmmaker? Um, I'm not sure, because uh, I've never really given that thought. But he is a filmmaker whenever I hear... There is a new film out, like when Crimes of the Future came out after kind of years of being somewhat quiet. I mean, he had been writing, he he wrote a novel and had been doing some TV work. Um, As soon as I heard that was coming out, I immediately knew I was going to see that as soon as it's humanly possible. So he is still definitely a director who drives that sense of fervor um, and excitement Mm -hmm. when something's coming out.
0: Well, why don't we use this opportunity to actually transition to our first film? Because that's going to uh, tie into a lot of sort of my own... uh, experiences of Cronenberg uh, and as the resident Canadian uh on this podcast offering sort of like maybe not a, a complete all of Canada perspective but at least sort of like what was it like for me to know of Cronenberg as a person uh so why don't we start talking about 1979's Fast Company When, like when I think of directors and like their style and their personal sense of like what do they like to do in their movies and their recurring, whether it's recurring actors, production themes, motifs, that kind of thing, this doesn't really feel like it fits into anything you would try and used to explain Cronenberg as a person because it's not his first movie. Like <laughs> a lot of, a lot of directors will be like get their start as like making smaller, more like low budget standard things and we make on the cheap sell for it, your Roger Corman esque kind of thing. Right. And then as they grow in stature, they'll, you know, <clears throat> they'll work out the, you know, they'll get more access to sort of the stuff that they want to do. But this is his like, this is his one, two, three, four, fifth movie, and so he's already. And by the time he does Fast Company, he's already done Shivers. He's already done Rabbit. He's done the original Crimes to the uh, Crimes of the Future. Um, <clears throat> so he's already like he's already knows how to do his like '80s horror thing that is going to that most people are going to think of when they think of Cronenberg. Um, but it's also not really sort of a breakout into more of a mainstream thing because the movie he makes after Fast Company is The Brood, so like yeah. it's from a like if you haven't seen Fast Company and I wouldn't blame you because most I would assume that most people haven't like I had until we had started planning this episode I don't think I had ever heard of it. Um, it is it's the the for for me. The, it feels like a like it's a 1970s car movie so like I think of something like Smokey and the Bandit um, as sort of like it maybe that's not the, like the, the closest one but it's just like dudes driving cars and it's a good time because we're dudes driving cars and it's the 1970s um, it, ha, do any of the either of the two of you have a sort of like here's how I like here's how this sort of like fits as opposed to just like I don't know it's a thing he felt like doing
1: I, do. I think we love to, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think Chris will probably reiterate what I'm about to say. So Cronenberg is famously a car guy. He has said he loves made he loved making this movie. It's very dear to him. Um, if, there's a famous story when during the production of The Fly where they were trying to come up with the telepods and the original design. He's like, I remember reading the uh, or listening to the commentary, and he's like, Yes the original design was more like an Italian phone booth. Apologies for the terrible David Cronenberg impersonation. Um, and then I said, no, it has to look like this. And he points at his Ducati and he looks at the engine. And he's like, it's got to have cooling fins. And I can never look at the engine of a motorcycle the same ever again, because it just makes me think of the telepods for the fly. Um, but this, you can see that, yeah, he, he loves cars. Like there's all these loving shots of like, them fixing the cars there's the shots of the engines like he's fascinated with because technology of course is something that's very he has a healthy respect for for technology for its benefits but also it's what the terrors of what it could unleash um and in this he just gets to be like cars are great man and he famously has said he wished he could have worked with burt reynolds on a movie i read i don't know how true this is but I could, like you said, John, I could absolutely imagine Burt Reynolds in the role of Lonnie Lucky Man Johnson, our oh, yeah. star of
2: the film.
0: Yeah, I especially like the conversations around like the fuel mix. Like, like yeah. this is a serious like. No, no, no. Like, right? we 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 need to talk about the mixture of the of the fuel to make sure that it's correct,
1: right? or the chassis, of the design of the chassis. Look, I figured out how why it shakes so much. We're going to be great on the next run.
2: The the the, the quadrivalve was too much for it, and it shook the foundation, and then the stress of the frame <laughs> caused a crack, right? But that's where... That's where this is very much a Cronenberg movie. I mean, I th- I think if you look from his filmography, right, I th- this feels a little bit of a sense of like one for me, one for them. So, this is yeah. the first screenplay he didn't come up with himself. So this seems like it was a hey, we got a cool car pick. Would you want to do it? And as a guy who loves cars, I th- I think he jumped up at, th- yeah. at the chance to have some fun. I do think right to what you said Dan and and you know think about another who else would have done Um, There are famously, and we'll talk about the other one in a little bit, there are, this is a good time kind of fast car action racing movie. Um, And it does have, it does have a, a cool song based after the title of of the movie where there's a montage, but there's another song that plays as well. And for the amount of sex that is in this movie, you would think that they would, would have reserved the slower song for the loving sex scene. They don't, they reserve it for the building and customization of the the car and Cronenberg oh films God. all of the car sequences, especially like the putting in of the spark plugs. Like there is a sensuality <laughs> and there is a clinical precision to the way that he films the motors and the chassis and everything that is very indicative of what he would be doing later. Not only in one of the other films we're talking yep. about, but films like the fly where there is a almost an erotic love of of steel and construction and machines and engines. Um, He just was able to write that. (laughs) Yeah. He was just able to kind of slide that into a very much a good time action movie with a bunch of, bunch of just kind of old weathered character actors carrying this thing through. And
1: I would also argue. um, So there's also Cronenberg, like David Lynch as well was tied or offered several hit movies where he He famously turned them down because he's like, no, I'm not going to do them. One of them was Top Gun. And I imagine this is the closest that we'll ever get to what David Cronenberg's Top Gun was. Minus, well, this is kind of like America, yeah! You know, with all the paint jobs on the Fast code truck and everything. But it's the closest I think we'll ever get to what his Top Gun might have been like (laughs) if he had made that movie.
0: Yeah, I I definitely was thinking of this like your like how he was asked about Return of the Jedi or Total Recall, like what could yeah. have what could Cronenberg's career have looked like if he had decided to try and take a more conventional like just yeah. sneak my weird picadillos into these more like mainstream films, yeah, yeah. which I guess like <clears throat> like the first Cronenberg movie I ever saw was Eastern Promises, and I didn't know it was a Cronenberg movie. I was just like, I'm going to go watch uh, Aragorn uh, uh, in a, in, a, in a new movie, and I was like, this movie rules. And then many years later, realizing, wait, that that was Cronenberg. Like, so so this is right. this is probably where I should just sort of like give my Cronenberg story, which is that none of what he was doing was anywhere on my radar. I was too young and sheltered for any of that. However. As a Canadian, um, he, I did have an awareness of Cronenberg, which is that on occasion, there was this long-running uh, sketch show called Royal Canadian Air Force, and every so often, uh, they would reference Cronenberg in fact at one point they brought him on a, on a skit to re, uh, where he was advertising a fake cereal that he was developing called David Cronenberg's big hairy things and he and if I I, I, I could not find it on YouTube but if I remember my memory was is that he just pulls out this apple that has like fake fur on it and just starts eating it <laughs> that was sort of my childhood imagination of Cronenberg was this guy who is like making spooky weird like this guy's this guy's a weirdo and and we'll talk about this i think more in in probably the next movie but like the 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 reputation that he gets in my mind invokes certain like signifiers of like how you do like weirdo scary things but like his his now that I've seen a lot more of his movies, his, his, he's very like cold and clinical, and especially in the the early movies, like you're watching this sort of like muted drama, and then obviously you see something that's something it's completely disgusting.
1: Well, what's interesting about that, and I've thought about this a lot, knowing this, is that when he went to college, he went to become he was going to double major in both English and like insect studies, and he's talked about how all of his movies are from the point of view of the disease so he sees like everything he does is basically like a documentary of following the pathology of whatever he's going through. And that explains so much to me watching his movies. If yeah, like the fast company, like he's just watching these dudes just like he has an affection for them, but he's also kind of watching them at a distance as they uh, put Fasco all over their women. Um,
0: That's probably the most Cronenberg point in this movie, yeah. right? Is when he pours the oil on uh, on top of the, the 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 shirtless lady. Yeah,
2: I'm going to vote for for one more scene at the very end. That is that I thought was distinctly Cronenbergian, but uh, but I think that's one of the things I thought about too. Dan, as I was watching these, yeah. we we but like collectively people tend to categorize. Cronenberg style as cold and as clinical. And yep. I was saying the same thing. Um, but what I really think it is, and I love kind of the, the idea of like treating it like a pathology and just watching as it works. Yeah. It, it's, it's not so much cold and clinical. It's non yeah. Uh And this will get into yeah. a lot of the second movie that we're going to talk about, but he doesn't yeah. like, I never get a sense of subjectivity when he's doing something. Uh, the fly yeah. may be like the most where you are firmly on the side of somebody, but generally right. he wants to tell a story and he wants to show certain things and follow the story. But there's never a sense of like, moral judgment over what you are watching. And I find that fascinating the more of his work I see. And I also, you know, I I do
1: get the coldness because that was something that I, you know, I had sort of like associated with his work before I just dove dove deep into it last year. He's funny. Like he's, these movies are, the people in his movies are very human. That's what always gets me. That's why I can go back to these movies like, the Fly is the grossest love story you'll ever watch in a movie. Um, Video Drone, like his characters are people. They're not just like, as much as I like Kubrick, the people in Kubrick's movies are basically chess pieces that he's moving on a board. The people in a Cronenberg movie are making decisions. Their decisions are informing what you're watching. They're moving through things. And well, yes, there is a bit of a remove there because, like, there's kind of a documentarian style to his filmmaking. His people are people, they have sex lives, they make jokes, you know, you know, like the fly has that famous line where Seth, Seth Brundle says, I've got one word for you, cheeseburger, and then they go on a date, <laughs> you know, There, there's a very human aspect to, his people are humans, but there is again that remove where like Chris said, there is subjectivity to what he's filming, you know
0: what it reminds me of is like educational videos that you used to watch like in, in, in school, like health class, like we're going to learn <laughs> about this thing today. And, yeah. uh, I give, especially given what he was potentially looking at majoring in, I wondered if there was any sort of like rubbing off of like, he's probably had to seen so many of these that, yeah. uh, but, but something that I think that, I don't know if it comes up as much in this movie, um, is sort of like his interest in the, Whenever he does world building, there's always, mm-hmm. and actually there is a little bit of this when they talk about like Fasco and stuff, like the yeah. bureaucracies and the 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 sort of the way that he does this through like organizational like company names or just like yeah. um that stuff. I always that's probably some of the most fascinating stuff for me when it comes to that is like he doesn't have or is not generally not necessarily interested in in sort of like you know super upfront uh, in your face. Uh, like the the sort of bombastic sort of uh sort of world building, but like he'll just casually toss off a line about corpse or you know any of those things, and you're just like, wait a minute, I need to know like because he's clearly thought about it, he's clearly yeah. worked this out in his head, and it's just word and it's but but instead of like impressive design or in, like impressive spectacles that you were just watching, it's just words that people tell you, and then you're just like, okay, yeah, this is yeah. part of the resistance. That's just a thing I have to accept yeah. as being a fact
1: it's more textural than it is concrete. It's like, it's there to add flavor to what he's doing, but it's not what, it's not everything that he's doing. Like one of Chris probably can back me up on this. I think I'm sure he has it. One of the extras on the blue, the criterion Blu-ray for Videodrome is all of the like videos that Max Ren has to see. So like there's the samurai dreams, whatever video, any video that you see in there that like is maybe a two or three second clip. Cronenberg filmed that for Videodrome so like there's all the like fake TV shows like fake sex TV shows that are it, it is a feat he did it but it's like it's more like I don't need to see more of Samurai Dreams like the sexy Japanese TV show in Videodrome but I'm glad that it's out there for some reason you know.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and I do think like as far as the world building is concerned here, there is still, I mean, this he didn't originate the script, but he, he helped write the yep. script, and there's still that healthy right. distaste for kind of larger yeah. corporations and things like that as as wonderfully portrayed by John Saxon, who uh, is just... When he's a jerk, he's so deliciously a jerk. Um, I love him. We should probably really quickly, because I do want to talk about the end of this movie a little bit. I don't think we oh actually said what this movie was about, besides the fact that it's like a action, kind of good old boy race car movie. It, it And this is one of the things I liked about it, too, as far as the world building. It really does paint a picture of... It's something that was dying when I was growing up as a kid, but like yeah. the old, old the old rural town circuit kind of racing things. Yeah. Um, I grew up next to this place called the Orange County Speedway that was the same thing, demolition derbies and kind of like local yokels yeah. come in and doing drag races and, and stuff like that. And they'd put on shows and stuff. That's what this is about. And it's about an old... Yeah kind of aging um town star um Lonnie Johnson and 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 Billy who's the young upstart that works with him and it's it's about them going through this and then there's an evil there's of course an evil drag racer and 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 the corporate guy that's trying to play just for profit and how all that comes together um but anyone could have taken that shell and and made a halfway decent 1979, you know, action racing movie. Like, Hal Needham, yeah, Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds, they, you know, take that away, you get Smokey and the Bandit. It's possible. Yeah. Except for the end. <laughs> Because at the end, as you know, you have to have the big race, and you have to have kind of the one-up, and now the bad guy gets beat. And then, you know, typically if this were a couple years later, not only would the bad guy get beat, but then there'd be grudging respect between the two, and they'd probably shake hands and freeze frame, right? Like like Top Gun. That's not how this movie ends. This movie ends in fire and death and explosions. (laughs) In a way that, I mean, I was cracking up the entire time, but if we want to talk about, like, to me, the most Lovecraftian moment... I, uh, look. Lovecraftian moment, the most Cronenbergian moment uh, besides the the fetishistic filming of the customizing of the race car. It's at the end, so just to kind of spoil territory, you should see this. It's free. It's it's on Tubi. I actually had a blast with this movie. I'm really glad I watched it, but at the end of the movie, the bad guys, um, the, dri- the bad driver is not actually bad, and Cronenberg takes pains to show you scenes where he has no idea that this is going on. He doesn't like the good guys, but he, he he thinks he can beat them fair and square, but his his pit crew, one of which is wonderfully named Meatball, is Meatball. the real heavy of the well, picture. It
1: looks like Will Alden?
2: Yeah, it's such a weird—the <laughs> way these guys look is wonderful, and he is going to spill oil all over one of the lanes. There's a right lane and the left lane, and he's like, all you got to do is just make sure you're in the left lane, because whoever's in the right lane, right lane is going to— Slip in the oil and the car will somehow magically explode because it's slipping on oil. I I don't know. I don't know enough about cars to know how that works. It could be magic. Uh, So what winds up happening is they race and uh, Meatball is there and there's copious shots of Meatball, insert shots of Meatball spilling oil all over his pants and all over the uh, thing. And uh, (laughs) what winds up happening is, of course, the bad guy swerves lanes, gets hit by the oil. His car explodes in a hilariously bright and insane explosion. Um, They go after Meatball. Meatball catches on fire, and there is a prolonged, painful sequence of Meatball kind of walking and struggling and screaming and then falling to the ground. That's not the Cronenbergian moment. The Cronenbergian moment is... That could have been the scene. But no, they have a slight moment where they go and they turn him over and you find out that he's still alive and there is this insane burn makeup all over him and Meatball is like shivering in spasms of burn. And it's just, you just look at it like no one's screaming about it. It's just, I'm going to show you this shot of this guy who is very badly burned being turned over and shaking. Um, And then we're just going to cut to the the other climax (laughs) where a drag car hits a plane and the plane (laughs) gets clipped and explodes, it looks like, into the crowd. They don't say anything about it. They cut to the next scene where everyone's having a beer and deciding what they're going to do. But I swear to God it looked like a plane killed like 40 people (laughs) as it took off in daytime strangely enough as well because they take off and they, like they he escapes in the middle of the night so i don't know how time works again this could be a cronenbergian thing where time is an illusion you know race time doubly so to quote douglas adams but uh, it gets a little crazy at the end and it's it's so enjoyable and i have to imagine like cronenberg was like we're going to have some fucking fun doing the end of this movie
1: so David i love cronenberg's
2: that. fast and the furious <laughs> yeah.
0: it's it's yeah, like the, th- that stuff you specifically highlight, but even the, like, casual dropping of fucks or the casual, like, uh, you know, topless ladies uh, that show up here and there and get oil paint poured on them. <laughs>
2: the second most Cronenbergian <clears throat> moment to me, yes. <laughs>
0: like, they, the, 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 this the way that this movie feels to me is absolutely that kind of good old timey, uh, like the, the vibe of this is a good old timey car racing movie never goes away. But like in other circumstances, I can't imagine that any of those like smaller details, especially the big, the big finale is going to get past someone who's like, I need to make this. The whole point of this is to be cheap and make a like, make money uh, off of how cheap it is. It's like watching black and white movies where there's like, that aren't like it to deal with weird haze code issues. It's like, wow, <laughs> these movies aren't supposed to have those things in them. It, it feels, uh, um, yes. Like you, Chris, I had a great time watching it. It was yeah. like, this is, this is a good time. And it gets weird in some spots. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I think that, uh, like my last big, thing about this movie is that especially when you think of like the first half of Cronenberg's career when you, part of the his aesthetic is he's mostly shooting in like southern Ontario and, and Quebec um, which creates a lot of, like anytime I go to those places I'm just like yep this is yeah this is it it, it, it that part tracks as far as like the Canadian part But for this movie, it's sort of a different swing on it, because I'm out on the West. I'm like, if you think of an equivalent geography, I think of Alberta as basically being like just north of Colorado, like we're just by the mountains, West Coast. We're not really close to any of that stuff. And so this particular movie was shot out uh, up in Edmonton, which is just a few hours north of here. So like all the mountains, all the prairies, like, I'm getting a lot of that right now, because we're currently watching The Last of Us. And it's very like, people shooting in Alberta is sort of a very current thing to do right now. But it was nice to see like, a 1970s movie shot and like, Oh, yeah, this is all just my backyard. um, In a way that is is a is a different approach to sort of the the Canadian aesthetic that will show up in the, in our next movie, but then is more generally a Cronenberg thing of yeah, we just shoot in Ontario, we just shoot in Toronto, and wherever else we can find.
1: One last thing I want to mention about this movie and this I, this is the first movie where a lot of the people that he will work with Chris mentioned that he. Tends to work with the same crew over and over again That other than Howard Shore Like this is where his he starts working With Mark Irwin who will be the Cinematographer on all of his movies up To the fly before he switches over To Peter Shushitsky I think that's how Yeah Ronald Sanders is editor So that's what this is like of all of Because I watched Rabbit and I watched Shivers last year and those movies are fine But they don't look nearly as good As this movie this movie looks Phenomenal like this is a great looking movie and it's just like really well put together. And it's like where he starts working with all of the crew um, that will come to define like most of the look of his movies in the future.
0: I mean, Nicholas Campbell who plays the kid, yes. he shows up in the brood and I mostly know him as the guy from a much Da Vinci's, old- in- da Vinci's inquest. Absolutely. Inquest. <laughs> just like, Hey, it's the guy from Da Vinci's inquest. And actually, um, the, uh, uh, Gary Black, the other driver, uh, is, Uh (laughs) I mostly know him as the guy from Road to Avonlea. (laughs) So, and if you've never heard of Road to Avonlea, think of it as basically adjacent to Anne of Green Gables. It is basically that setting and milieu, but just a different set of stories. It's, um... Yeah, that's that's the fun of watching any Canadian movie is being like what is looking for act or anything that's shot in Canada is like looking for actors that you see show up in all kinds of places being like, oh, yeah, it's that guy.
2: You know, I know we have more car sex to talk about, so (laughs) I'm I'm good to leave this um, slight but really enjoyable movie uh, behind and get into something with a little bit more uh, meat on its bones.
1: So Crash is David Cronenberg's 1996, 1996, I believe, um, film um, based on a novel by J.G. Ballard about a movie producer named James Ballard, played by James Spader, who gets into an automobile accident and it awakens in him, a maybe as Roger Ebert said, a kink that nobody has of being in cars that are wrecked and just being stupid. Incredibly turned on by that, And he encounters Holly Hunter In the car wreck that he has at the beginning of the movie who also this awakens In her or maybe she's been It has already been awakened in her um, She's been one of these people and He goes into this whole subculture Of people who are Turned on by Car crashes or being In cars that are destroyed um, It stars James Spader Holly Hunter Elias Codius, who I knew as a child as Casey Jones in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. Um, And Deborah Kara Unger, who we discussed off mic, as James Spader's wife. And it is a movie that is... I, I put this on Letterboxd. And I talked about it a little bit in our Discussion of Fast Company, but sexuality Is something that is very present In David Cronenberg's movie It is just a part of everyone's lives It is in, like I said All of his movies, people, all of the Adult, because he makes films for Adults, um, in the Sense that they are geared Towards adults with adult sensibilities That these people have sex lives, and this is his Ultimate statement On, I believe, sex And I believe it's his biggest statement on transformation because transformation is such a key part of this film. The car wreck is a transformation surviving a car wreck. You are transformed. I've been in several car wrecks and it is, it's an experience, Um, but it did not awaken in me the desire to be in a car wreck and have sex. Um.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, I've, I've also been in one or two car accidents and it has not, uh, it's not had that particular reaction. Although, when we get to it, there is a the the Cronenberg cold distance thing allows for it, it it prompts me to have a specific reading on this movie that I don't and I'll be curious how you folks think about
2: it. crap. Okay. I think yeah. So I won't get into the the <laughs> the penchant to wanting to have sex in after before yep. during car crashes, but I yep. I think. There are some things I, I had written about this film. This is aging myself somewhat. But back in the days when a lot of people had blogs, they would do these things called blogathons. And like I, I told you guys, like 13, 14 years ago, um, there's a website still out there called Cinema Viewfinder. Um, and they were hosting a Cronenberg blogathon. And I picked this movie. Um, and there are a lot of things. This is This was not my—I'll say this. I probably enjoyed Fast Company the most. But of the three we're talking about, this is David Cronenberg's best movie. This is probably one of the best movies to my mind, even though I don't love it. And I probably don't need to see it again for another 10 years. I think I see this movie once every 10 years. Um, I don't need to see it again, but I think it's one of his masterpieces. I think it's—you could talk earlier about some of the films he did, like Dead Ringers— or um, and butterfly, which I take very differently as an adaptation, but this is where he starts to move away from the science fictiony elements um, that 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 served as the foundation for a lot of what he was trying to do with horror and transformation and technology and interpersonal connection, and just started to use the tools of reality. Um, I, I I think it's a it's an interesting demarcation point because I would argue like with Dead Ringers which really doesn't have any science fictiony or 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 fantastic elements yeah. there are pieces when it comes to if if you haven't seen this the um, the gynecological instruments that are created and customized yeah. for him I think that veers into weird sci-fi territory where th- no one is actually ever going to use yeah. those for gynecological reasons or and, that dream sequence <laughs> right whereas here. As weird as it gets with some of the body modifications and the scarring and stuff, it's all very rooted in reality. Um, And the thing that I find fascinating about it—and we could talk about individual scenes. I think this has one of the best Cronenberg scenes ever, um, which is when they pass the roadside accident and kind of what happens there. But to me, kind of bordering on what you were saying, Dan, to me, this is a movie— Yes, it's about transformation, and yes, it's about kind of a lot of his um, pensions and peccadillos coming to the fore. It's also a movie about connection, about as we head spiraling into the end of the millennium, right, um, all these things that are blocking our connection with each other, right? This is very much, you know, positioned as a tale of a husband and wife who— can't connect and they have an open marriage and everything, you know, as wild as their sexual encounters are, their connections with each other are very sedate and listless and are missing something. So what do you do when you can't connect? Well, you try to connect harder and harder and harder. And all of a sudden, oh, here comes the metaphor with the car crashes, right? How, how the lengths that we will go to make a connection, um, is where I find, really the beauty of this at times often horrific and ugly <laughs> such an yeah. ugly movie that is filmed so beautifully and so clinically uh, uh, this is where like the the clinical precision of him as a director really comes to the fore um, I don't know that anyone else could have made this movie and make it have the effect that it does but I, I come away with it filled with typical Cronenberg ends this thing on a stunner of an ending That is again completely non judgmental, but in a way, kind of judgmental of like, no one's going to learn anything. We're going to keep doing this again and again and again until we get the connection that we're striving for. Uh, And I love it for that. Or
1: they'll destroy themselves.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Now. I may watch Fast Company again before I watch Crash again, <laughs> but I will say I mean this is just a this is a this is a, a monster of a fantastic movie, um, super aud- audacious. I think uh, I mentioned before I saw this um, in its first thea- theatrical run because at the time, uh, NC seventeen was kind of fairly new. Um, I remember hey I, I I'll own this too. I also saw Showgirls in the movie theater because I had to see an NC seventeen movie and understand what the difference was. Um, I saw this as well and i can tell you man people did not respond well to this movie in the theater (laughs) i don't think i responded well to it in the theater because i was coming off of things like the fly and 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 more of side i had seen videodrome and scanners and stuff like that at that point this was something different for me um but over the years it just really starts to speak toward everything that i think Cronenberg kind of strives for without the trappings of genre that I think he had to rely on in the past. I th- I think it's very interesting that from this movie going forward, yeah, he does existence which we should have a follow-up conversation at some point as to the success or lack thereof of that movie. But this I, is where I, I think that. yeah, I think <laughs> this is where he goes on to John to like Eastern Promises and a history of violence where it becomes Not only much more commercial, but he's able to talk about his themes without having to rely on genre to do it, or at least sci-fi horror genre, right? He's in very much another action-y thriller genre when he does that, Um, but it's a different pace and a different setting for him. I think this is really as brilliant as he is early in his career. This is almost like the start of the second renaissance for him.
0: That being said, there is one I do want to I do want to call out one of my favorite details in the movie because I was talking in the last one about um, his love of like just casually tossed off references to made up organizations. The fact that the people who are chasing these uh, folks down and trying to t- isn't the cops; it's the Department of Transport. <laughs> like in that, it's just a one. It's one line. It's just casually mentioned, and then they're off to a different thing. But as soon as I heard that, I was like howling. It was easily my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> I was like they they, they want to uh, yeah, like they want to, you know, persecute yeah. us for wanting to have car crashes.
2: It's a great moment, but it also solves the problem of right. In reality, like none of those people would have gotten away. The cops would have surrounded them. And been like you're not running into the woods, you idiot. We're going to arrest you. But you know, by just throwing off that one little line, it's like, oh, they just care that they're on the runways. Well, we'll like just
0: I would, I actually would be f- <laughs> f- desperately fascinated to watch a movie that was solely focused that like a if they were ever going to do like some kind of sequel, just be like. All right, now we're going to do a movie about the Department of Transport trying to catch, <laughs> uh, track down these weirdos.
1: I will say in that scene that Chris mentioned with the... Uh, because part of the movie is like they have Elias Codius is trying to recreate famous car crashes or things that happened in cars like he has the Lincoln that Kennedy was shot in or the same brand of car. Um, is when they're going through that car crash scene, which is just horrific... He sees the one of the guys that he did the recreations with, and he's like, "You did the Jane Mansfield without me? Yeah, Seagrave. How could you do <laughs> yeah, Seagrave?" And I was like watching the movie when they're like, "We're going to recreate Jane Mansfield's crash." And for anyone who doesn't know, Jane Mansfield was a famous actress who looked very much like Marilyn Monroe, and she died in a horrific car crash where she was decapitated. And I'm sitting there going how the hell are they going to recreate that? And somebody survives that car crash. And then they answer it. It's like, no, they're not going to survive it. And it just like Elias Kodius is Vaughn going, you did it without me. How could you? And,
0: and I think this is where the non-judgment part comes in, yeah. where you are like right. <laughs> at, at no point on a like connecting to my own any part of my own existence where i can be like yes i get it but the but the way it's so treated where the you know the director and actors working together basically be like they're selling you on no 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 like if if i can buy christopher lee fighting you know the occult then i can buy elias codeus uh uh you know just being super bummed out that he didn't get to be join in on basically what would amount to his own death
2: yeah there's a he is i i mean i i think all of the performances are really good in this movie um but he is fantastic as Vaughn there's a great yeah. throwaway sequence uh, sequence where he and James are driving and uh they start talking about like what he really wants and what he really wants is that kind of orgasmic explosion that comes with the merging of sex and car crashes. And James is like, I thought this was all about the ultimate merging and blending and transformation of man and machine, which is one of Cronenberg's biggest things. And yeah, that is really just like
0: stating the theme. That's
2: just something. That's (laughs) just something I tell like, like the newbies coming in to see if they're really interested in doing this. I love like, there's this wonderful moment of (laughs) Cronenberg laughing at himself and then pushing on to like the more mature theme that he tries to get at. Um, it's just, there are like just wonderful little moments like that. And Vaughn is creepy as hell. There's never a moment where yeah. you're like, where you're, you're not kind of terrified by his presence. Even the very first scene where they're in the hospital after the car crash, he is uh, walking Holly Hunter, who you can get a sense of, they have a a prior relationship and you find out that they do actually know each other but when he comes up to, to to james um he stands very very close to him and it gets like immediately uncomfortable that there's this proximity there's this connection that's trying to be made like vaughn is is the is the ultimate in i need to have the connection right now i'm gonna get as close to you as possible i'm gonna be as extreme as possible right uh i am going to do that and then juxtapose that with, with, with Ballard Spader's character who is slowly and slowly brought in and that distance closes and closes and closes yeah. until it gets to the end. Um, and he, in effect, kind of in his own twisted way becomes, becomes Vaughn in a way yeah. that, you know, that whole ending where he's chasing, um, Kara Unger, um, on, on the freeway is not only a mirror of what happened when Vaughn does it earlier in, in the film, but it's yeah. kind of that, that transformation is now complete. And they are going to, with those last words, continue to chase and chase this. Maybe next time. That's, that's such a great ending. What a great, hopeless, yeah. bleak ending to this movie. Maybe next time. After he runs her off the road, she nearly dies. And the camera slowly kind of pulls out as they have sex underneath next. a wrecked car. Right. <laughs> uh, maybe next time. Knowing that like they're just going to keep doing this until they die.
0: I There's something about this that almost felt like it was... Um, there's some like addictive quality to the whole thing. Like these people are like fiending for that connection. And I, I don't know if that's like, again, this is where the, the, the Cronenberg sort of at a distance, he's not going to tell you that stuff, but my, this was my second time watching it and watching it for this time. I was like, man, this kind of feels like I'm watching addicts of uh, or, or people trying to like satiate that thing that is lacking within them. And although I don't know if other people would use that language to describe it.
2: I think a, certainly in cinema and I would imagine in life, a precedent has clearly been set of people mistaking sex for connection, right? I need to make a connection. Therefore I am going to just sleep with everybody that I can right now. There is a judgment piece to that, which needs to be removed um, but that that yearning for connection via physical means, I think, has been around forever, uh, in reality and and in films. Um, and I think it's brave of Cronenberg, and I think this is why it was so. Um, yeah. kind of uh, railed against when the movie came out, you should judge them. You should judge all this horrible things that are happening. We didn't even talk about uh, one of, like, I I will open up about one of my crushes growing up and that is for Rosanna Ar- Arquette who is also in this movie. There yeah. is a horrific scene. <laughs> if you want to talk about maybe the worst sex scene, there is a sex scene between James Spader and Rosanna Arquette which is horrifying. Uh, horrifying, I tell you. Horrifying. Uh, and, you know, I think people at the time... In in the late 90s where, like, how dare you show us this stuff and not have any moral kind of judgment about it? Uh, And I think it's incredibly... Uh, prescient and brave of Cronenberg to kind of present all these different tableaus. I mean, there is straight sex, there is gay sex, there is sex yeah. with an open wound, there is sex yeah. in car, sex out of car, sex in death. There's, it's crazy. And he yeah. doesn't judge it. He's just like, what I am showing you are people striving like junkies to connect because they need some type of human connection. Whether it is right or wrong, whether it is morally just or not, this is the path that they are pursuing. And I'm going to show you what that looks like at uh, and I find yeah. that it, this was uh, noted, um, it went to Cannes where people like freak the fuck out. Uh, and it's the, the first and yeah. only time it was given a special Cannes Award for Audacity in Filmmaking. And to date, that award has not been given out since, which I think is astounding uh, of, of Cronenberg to have elicited that type of response. And I was reading about
1: that. So that Conjury was headed by Francis Ford. Coppola. Famously Catholic director. <laughs> um, and I can see why he would hate this movie because he, it, it, like you said, Chris, there's no judgment. There's so much. I was really surprised watching this, the sexual fluidity in this film. There's the open marriage, like you said, there's gay, se- there's queer sex. Um, there, like, like you said, like Rosanna Arquette has a wound clearly that looks like a vaginal opening, um, <laughs> which so cronenbergian yeah like, there's it, there's no way non- other way to
0: describe it really no.
1: yeah <laughs> yeah um and it it was shot i feel like i came to this movie because this was my first time watching it and it was so hyped up as this just
2: oh god
1: you know the way because i remember ted turner who was the head of new line cinema who owned new line cinema famously came out against his own movie saying how the why the fuck was this released under my banner? You know, why did I put out this movie? Why did I give money to this movie? And I want, and I'm not sure if I'm desensitized or I've watched so many Cronenberg movies that when I came out of this movie, I'm like, yeah, this, this, this is exactly what David Cronenberg thinks about sex. Um, I'm not as shocked. It is a transgressive movie. That is not, I, I want it clear that I do think this is a transgressive movie. It is a movie that as, I think you're both right. It is a movie about connection. It is a movie about chasing the feeling of being in that car crash and chasing that feeling of, you know, provocativeness of trying of just the joy of sex, you know, and just trying to get that feeling that you have and doing it, even if it destroys you, you know, even if these connections or these, you know, try. It's just trying to feel in this world where, as James Spader constantly says. Are there more cars on the road than there were before? <laughs> yeah. Um something I do want to talk about um is the James Spaderness of this movie and getting at how just I don't know if this destroyed his career but it is a movie that basically takes his star persona and his acting abilities where he's like the sleazy like he is, he's he's at the side, height of him being an incredibly attractive man and a man known for sexual in the same way michael douglas when we talked about basic instinct inverting his star persona so that where he's sort of the clueless guy michael douglas was the clueless guy that just sort of happened across these awful women and in basic instinct he's an awful human being that lets a woman basically just destroy him james spader in this movie basically becomes a takes sort of like there's always a creepiness to james spader and in this movie it's Cronenberg just sort of ratchets, ratchets it up to 11. Um, and something else I want to talk about with Cronenberg is he always has very unconventional leading men, um, Christopher Walken in The Dead Zone, uh, famously Jeff Goldblum as Seth Brundle in The Fly. And he he's able to use these, me, these leading actors that just, there's always a little something off, and they just fit so perfectly in his movies because he can take that one thing that's a little off and then ratchet it up to 11 and it suddenly becomes what it just suits the themes of his movie so well
2: i would have loved to have seen i i loved james spader in this um i yeah the one thing that i think of is man i would have loved uh because i love when cronenberg picks kind of like the i don't want to say off the beaten path like leading man but I would have loved to have seen a world where they continue to partner up and it's not Jude Law in existence. It's James Spader instead.
1: Yeah. One of the things getting ready for this podcast that I did was, other than Naked Lunch, I watched all of Cronenberg's 90s movies. And something that I find very fascinating, and he made the transition with Dead Ringers, is that his 90s movies, if his 80s movies are about the physical and the physical transformation, his 90s films, I feel like, they're about a mental transformation It's all about the interior and going from, because he does naked lunch, which is all about shifting perspectives and then losing your mind. He does M butterfly, which is about, you know, thinking, you know, one thing and then learning that everything you knew was wrong and you let yourself get fooled by it crash, which is obviously about the transformative and the mental transformation that takes place with, this car crash, Existence, which is just a whole hall of mirror. And then he goes into his the next movie we're going to talk about, which is Spider. And that is entirely, it's genre-free, but it is also, in and he made it at the beginning of the 21st century, 2002, which is, it's all about the interior, but it also starts transitioning into his other films that he will make
2: throughout the the next decade. I think that's a... I think that's a really good point. I didn't think of it like that, but if you think yeah. of um, Spider, right, done in 2002, um, as this as the kind of gestational movie, transitional movie to the next stage of his career, I think it makes perfect sense, and probably no better yeah. transition to start talking about it. Oh, uh... Okay, so Spider, um, from 2002, we're again going to the territory of Cronenberg, um, adapting an author of some repute, in this case, Patrick McGrath, from his uh, book of the same name. This is this is going to be an interesting one. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to having the conversation with you guys, because th- this was my pick. It was one of my big blind spots um, that I had always been meeting to rectify. One of our other guest hosts on the show, Eric Heider, he's a big fan of this film had always gently chastised me for not seeing it. Um, So I was excited um, to come and see it. So what this movie is about, um, Ray Fiennes, Miranda Richardson, and uh, Gabriel Byrne um, are basically the core of this film. Ray Fiennes stars as Dennis Clegg, a.k.a. Spider. He's a schizophrenic man who, at the beginning of the movie, is coming out of a mental institution to stay at a halfway house. And over the course of the film, we learn a little bit about his history. We learn about um, his childhood and his parents. And uh, what may or may not have been a um, brutal murder and how that affects his mind. Um, so I won't go into much more than that. That's the basic gist of the story. We'll talk about specifics. But I came away with this movie really interesting. This is, I think, even more so than Crash. This film is gorgeous. It is Beautifully shot. There is um, an opening sequence with this huge kind of dolly shot um, at a train station with all of these people walking in, and Cronenberg is masterful. He holds off on introducing Ray Fine's spider coming off of the train, like literally until the last possible moment. It's one of the most tense sequences I've seen in a Cronenberg film, and all it is is I'm waiting for the main character to show up. Um, It's gorgeous. His framing is exquisite. His use of muted color is exquisite. This is a director's kind of dream. Um, from a performance perspective, Ray Fiennes, I had first come to him through Schindler's List, um, you know, where he played the the heavy and then Strange Days where he plays the hero. I mean, we can talk on and on about some of the incredible roles that he's had. He is phenomenal in this. Uh, there are just these wonderful choices. He has these two horribly stained fingers uh, because when you're in a mental institution and stuff like that, and I've seen this time and time again, all you got time to do is smoke, you know, so you're constantly smoking and twitching he is all loose string and shambles and rickety frame it it is an incredible performance and it's still the secondary (laughs) performance to miranda richardson who plays kind of three roles in this movie um so loved all of that where i came away though at the end is that ultimately for me and this is where i really want to get your guys take on this um this to me is a shallow movie. Uh, It plays with some of his ideas, Cronenberg, like when it comes to identity and transformation, that is very much a part of the plot of this movie. Um, Relationships and sex come into play, but this is the first movie of his that I've seen, except for when we start moving forward, where... The plot is the thing and not the thematic ideas behind it. So ultimately, there is a kind of a almost an M. Night Shyamalan ending of like, hey, this is what actually happened. And, you know, oh my goodness. Um, and I left coming away with, oh, OK, I get the story. I kind of get what happened. I don't get any larger like idea or canvas that Cronenberg is trying to get across, and that's why Dan, when you you talked about that kind of transitional moment going into the two thousands, this leads into a history of violence, and it leads into um, Easter Promises, all of which play in a new genre, right? A genre of thriller, Um, but it takes sort of his ideas and it just uses them to drive story as opposed to explore different ideas. So ultimately, weirdly as gorgeous as this film is, this was my least favorite of the three that we watched this time. What did you did you guys have a different re- response or am I missing a larger thematic thing here in Spider?
1: No. Um I will be I will say this having seen so many of Cronenberg's movies over the last year, um I will say Fast Company was not a movie I was wanting to revisit just because I'd seen it back in November um, only because I'd seen it so soon. I did rewatch it last night, but spider I was excited to see because like you, Chris, it was a blind spot for me, but spider highlights um, something I've noticed with movies where Cronenberg hasn't entirely written the script himself or he's, you know, he's at a remove from the script other than one movie. And it will be one of my recommendations. Um, He's an like you also said, Chris. He's an incredible formalist. He's he knows he can craft, and he's such an exquisite craftsman. And in this movie, like I love all those scenes where Ray finds is just sort of looking in on his memories, or he's like hovering over like the desk, and like it looks fantastic. But I don't feel like I feel like Cronenberg has picked scripts that he's interested in, but it's hard for him to just sort of pull out. If the script isn't as good as his direction, you notice it. And the script here is, like you said, Chris, it's not very deep. It's not, you know, it's just sort of, oh, I get what's going on. And it might actually honestly be better as a theater piece, I think. I think it might be better if he made a theatrical production of it, which for anyone who's listening, he did do a version of The Fly that was an
2: opera um, that Howard Shore created if either of you were unaware um, interestingly, it, just looking, uh, thank you, Wikipedia. This is the first yeah. of a string of movies where he is not yeah. credited on the screenplay. This right. was adapted by Patrick McGrath. Right. And right. the next couple have different screenwriters. Yeah. Where he's not really, yeah, touching. he doesn't write another. Yeah. He
1: doesn't write another screenplay until he does cosmopolis, which isn't a great movie. Um, also based even, on a
2: book. So, this guy's, this guy's in yes. the book thing.
1: <laughs> right. Um, but it's not, but I feel like there's, he, he has a hard time when he's making movies where he doesn't write the script, like, even The Dead Zone. I think The Dead Zone, if his name was on it, I would love more, but because I expect so much more from Cronenberg, The Dead Zone is fine. I think it's a good script, I think it's a good movie, but it's not, like, if I was, if you asked me for top 10 Cronenberg movies, it would not be in my top 10. But if you asked me for top 10 King movies, I would probably put it in. it mm, be yeah. As
0: far as, uh like, I, I, I agree that the I, I think you can th- this movie has sort of whether it's a, a feature or a bug I think of like you can more or less like you can there is a reasonable simple well not simple but like there is a reasonable explanation of this movie that doesn't cause everyone to be tongue-tied when you talk about it um, yeah. but when you're talking about things that are missing I, I do agree that like I think Miranda Richardson is sort of like the yeah. easily easily the highlight but I this was my second time watching it and I came away from this one being actually fairly taken with Gabriel burns uh, yeah. uh, performance um, <clears throat> mostly because I mean the thinking watching it through the second time with sort of like the plot twist that uh, you know is coming and seeing sort of how the perspective uh, or how Gabriel P- burns performance, it change your your, per, your perception of him changes uh sort of before and after where it's not that he, be, he goes from villain to like victim or anything like that or he's not it's it's not like it's a complete opposite 180 um he's always still a little bit too rough uh uh as a parental figure like probably could stand to be a little bit less um you know aggressive in that sense but the but but there is absolutely a like the way that he is being like i mean obviously miranda richardson will talk like we want to talk about transformation and how she is perceived by uh, ray fines that is sort of the the centerpiece but also like who gabriel Byrne is is very much is also tied into that as well where um Once you know what has happened, uh, it, it, it absolutely reframes the rest of it. And I think that's like, yeah, I, Miranda Richardson and Gabriel Byrne are probably my two like highlights for this movie.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I've always said, uh, you, you can never have too much Gabriel Byrne. I love Gabriel Byrne. (laughs) I I wish he was in more things. Um, but that brings up an interesting question because I, I, I wonder, if I have a slightly different interpretation than you guys, so let me ask this question: um, uh, Did h- how do I frame this? So, spoiler: the the movie hinges on the fact that Spider, already kind of in the throes of mental illness as a child, um, crafts this kind of Rube Goldbergian uh, spider web trap to murder his stepmother, and I'm using air quotes here for a second, uh, by turning on the gas and and causing her to die. Um, it turns out, in a twist of events, that he actually killed his mother. Um, and then the movie kind of ends with him now seeing Miranda Richardson in everybody, including the caretaker at the halfway house, um, almost kills her, doesn't, and then it's just kind of, this movie kind of ends kind of quickly and suddenly just, oh, nope you're not her. You're actually the landlady. She calls the cops. He goes away, uh, back to the mental institution. So the question I have for you guys is, um, is there actually a stepmother? Because I came away with saying, no, "No, there's never a stepmother. It's always his mother, right?
1: Yeah. There's never a stepmother. Yeah.
2: No one's ever actually murdered. There's never an actual stepmother. It all hinges on the one scene where spider walks in and sees the mother trying on like a sexy gown, and she's like, you know, what do you think? Do you think Dad will like it? And that triggers him to kind of make this weird mental e- equation with the the whores that he sees in in the bar when he goes to grab his 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 dad to come home for dinner. And that just like that's the break for him. And there was never a stepmother at any point in this movie. Yeah. Okay, I, I want to be sure. <laughs> this maybe there yeah. could have been. <laughs> my
0: no. my my general take on this was that he. And admittedly, I did do a little bit of reading on this, so I'm not like I'm not grabbing this out of thin air. I don't remember who to credit for this, but uh, um, basically, his inability to see his mom as anything other than his mom mom. as 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 a person who has you know a sex life, which again we talk about how this connects to like other Cronenberg stuff. Um, That like I don't remember the exact moment where that happens, but that sort of precipitates. his his break where now he can't see his mom as his mom he sees his mom as the, the as a wanton
2: yeah yeah as, as the, yeah
0: as the as the tart as they as they call from the from the bar right and and a lot of the movie is ray finds sort of sort of obs- existing within memories of himself and he's observing himself uh in these things that he's has but a lot of the memories that we are watching he's not like him as a child was not part of. And so a lot yeah. of that stuff is actually just complete fabrications of his childhood mind, trying to fill in the gaps of uh what he assumes must have been the case. Cause I don't think his mom actually showed him her tits uh right. at a bar <laughs> like that, that. I'm pretty sure that one was just like, that's he just like his brain must've just like invented that because like that, Again, his mom has to be his mom. His mom can't be anyone else. It can't be like exist, have a larger existence than being
2: his mom. This movie makes very clear in the beginning that the narrator is extremely unreliable, right? And that gets proved on throughout the course of the film. Well, his dad
1: goes to the the stepmom's apartment and it's like a porno where it's like, Hi, I'm the plumber. I'm here to fix your pipes. (laughs) (laughs) He does say that
2: oh those pipes need to clean it what are you you gonna do
0: like if you if you really want you could just you know scream freud at uh at this whole thing and that's like again that's why i think there is like a reasonably like shallow is certainly one way to look at it and i think another way to look at it is just like no this can be in uh, contrary to a lot of uh cronenberg movies especially the ones that we hold on to and love to talk about so much this is one that can be like nope this is just a reasonably understood explanation and you know, we can sort of move on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's very little ambiguity once you get to that point where it's like, Oh, he, he never saw his mom as a human being. He saw his mom as a caretaker and not somebody who had, who loved her husband in a very physical way.
0: And that's why, like, as the caretaker, actually, that's why the lady running the halfway house also becomes Miranda Richardson at a certain point, Um, is because she starts to fulfill similar... Uh, like a similar role for him.
2: Yeah, so I think overall, I mean, it seems like we're all in agreement, so we we might be able to kind of cut it here, but I mean, a fine-looking film that gets from point A to B in a fairly clean and efficient manner, and, you know, no need to look any further than that. So if you're just looking for like a cool thriller with maybe a little bit of a gotcha moment at at the end, this will serve you fine, but I wouldn't, um, besides the way that it is presented, I don't know that I would rank this as... Kind of my my favorite Cronenberg.
0: No, unlike uh, <laughs> unlike Dan Dan's hesitance to go back to uh, Fast Company so soon. I I would probably <laughs> prefer to go back to Fast Company uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, without too much hesitation. I was like, yeah, nope, that was straight up and down a good time, in in, in like in in a way that if it's not doesn't quite achieve the same greatness as the rest of his work is, is, is at least fun. And this was like, I, I don't know if I'd characterize spider as, as, as fun though. Like again, not for any of the lack of performances from the actors. I thought the actors all did a, did a, did a reasonable good job. And now it's time for our last segment. We are going to do some recommendations. Uh, we didn't establish an order, so I'm just going to go first. Uh, My two picks, uh, for this particular, uh, episode are going to be, uh, scanners, uh, of, of like older Cronenberg. That's, that's, that's probably the one that just goes down easiest for me of like, um, the 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 obviously the 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 memorable effect shot of the head exploding the like the two the Sue secret sides fighting against each other using mostly only like text like ideas to talk about all that stuff i was mentioning here i i find that the most compelling and most fun and of course uh michael ironside is uh, uh delightful like it's it's uncomplicated for me that it probably one of my in that movie. <laughs> yeah. It's just, so good. it's just so good. Um,
1: him sitting at the table right before he makes the dude's
2: head explode. And he's just like, <laughs> there is a, like, a, a, a glint in his uh, expression. That's wonderful. <laughs> yes.
0: And, uh, my second, uh, my second Cronenberg recommendation is Eastern promises. Again, it was the first one I saw, and I just have a deep and abiding love for that movie. Um, uh, you get to see you get to see Aragorn's dick. Not you can feel about that, however you feel like it doesn't have to be a selling point, but it is a thing that happens uh, in a knife fight. Like it's a it's a rather rather rugged uh, uh, fight that happens in a in a locker room. So you would one would be naked in there. So um, no, I. Uh, Eastern Promises sort of is one of those like. I, I put it in a similar category for me of like movies like Hunt for Red October or Crimson Tie, where it's just movies I could just watch anytime at any point for any reason. And it's, uh, uh, and it sits well with me. Uh, Dan, what do you got for us today?
1: So I have. Technically, I have three movies, but the first is a Cronenberg, a David Cronenberg film. It is, and I watched this just in preparation because I wanted to come up with my, see if I was right about his 90s film. It is M. Butterfly. It is his adaptation of the play. Um, I was actually really surprised by this movie that I liked it as much as I did. It's gorgeous. It features Jeremy Irons as a French diplomat in China in the 1960s, and he meets a... Chinese opera singer I forget the name but played by John Leone but John Leone presents himself as a woman and and Jeremy Irons falls in love and basically ruins his life falling for this person not realizing the whole time it's been a man being totally unaware of the Chinese tradition of men portraying women in opera and it speaks and I think this is one of the Cronenberg movies that he did not write. It was adapted for the screen by the playwright. Let me find their name. David Henry Huang. Uh, they adapted their own play, and I think it's the richest of the Cronenberg movies that he did not write himself. Cronenberg is it's his most political film of basically critiquing Westerners entering Asia thinking they understand the culture and absolutely not knowing it. And it's his critique of, I believe the Vietnam war, there's a lot of richness in this script that I think he digs into. And again, I was really surprised by this movie because it doesn't generally get talked amongst his best movies. And I do think it is. The other recommendation I have is not for David Cronenberg, but his son, Brandon, Um, his son, Brandon Cronenberg has made three movies to date antiviral, possessor and infinity pool um i'm gonna wreck both recommend both possessor and infinity pool they're both wild movies possessor is a movie about an assassin who hops into other people's bodies like via mental implants and then slowly loses her mind andrea riseborough is the lead in that movie she's phenomenal um, as she normally is and it's it also features Jennifer Jason Lee, who was in Existenz. And in my head, I like to pretend that Andrea Geller from Existenz is her. Hand, is the same person in Possessor. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's great. But just like those two films, my head, feel
2: like, very much like there is like a weird yeah. shared universe. It feels like there.
1: Right. Also, John, you would probably like this given your knowledge of given that you are in Canada and the opening scene features a black woman killing what looks like a Rob Ford stand-in ha! very brutally. <laughs> it's
0: great. I mean, I already had it on my list, but like, sure, sell me on it more. <laughs> Why don't Yeah.
1: The other movie, and it was just released in theaters, and I, saw, I feel fortunate I got to see it, was Infinity Pool. And the premise of Infinity Pool is that Alexander Skarsgård and his wife go to this foreign country. They stay in the compound that they are told to stay in this compound, but they meet some people, one of whom is Mia Goth, who say, hey, why don't we just go off-site for a day and, you know, just have a nice day? So they have a nice day. They get drunk, feet sausages. They just have a nice day on the beach. But on their way home, they run over a guy. Alexander Skarsgård kills a guy in the car. And he's, you find out in this country there is a... Policy that if you're rich enough you can pay to have a double of yourself made so that that because you have it is it's if you kill somebody it's automatic death penalty but if you have enough money you can pay to have a double of yourself killed but you also have to watch it and he eventually finds out there's this whole culture of tourists that have come to this country they have obviously committed horrible acts that have caused them to be murdered and he gets caught up with these people and it just becomes this identity issue with identity it's like his dad but where his dad is a little more clinical and he would just sort of like he's very judgmental of these rich idiots that have just decided we're gonna we have no consequences because we have money and we can just do what we want when we go to this country and it's really good. It's just fascinating. I, I'm still thinking about it. I re- wish I had seen it a second time in theaters. It's just very rich. I think it's his bet. Brandon's best movie so far, but I highly recommend both possessor and infinity pool.
2: That's good to hear. Cause I, I, yeah. I, I was okay with antiviral. I didn't think it was that great, but I really enjoyed possessor. So if it's an uphill, yeah. like he's, he's scaling to is. greatness. It makes me even more excited to see infinity pool. I, yeah,
0: I haven't, I, I know possessors on my, <laughs> like I have to, I have to get to it at some point. Um, yeah. I found myself, I was not, I don't think I was necessarily prepared for, um, uh, how much I also responded to M butterfly when I watched it last year. Yeah. Um, it's th- there's again, I've spent a lot of time in this episode talking about how much I love just the weird shit that he makes up. Like the, mm-hmm. the we're just going like, who needs the real world when we can invent our own. Right. B- but, right. but this here feels like more so than um, a lot of other stuff is just like, no, 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 we can, he can tell c- completely captivating and compelling stories um, in a much more grounded real world. Uh, type context. And the fact that he's doing it like a movie that's yeah. baking, basically making fun of the Western culture that he comes out of yeah. is interesting. Chris, nice. how about yourself? What do you got for us today? Um,
2: so, unfortunately, I don't have a Cronenberg reference, uh, which would have been more apropos because of the episode, but I do have a callback. To the last time Dan was on our show. So I'm going to actually recommend um, a book and then a TV show. So the last time that we were all together, uh, we were also talking about uh, the great film critic uh, and now also bookshop owner, Matt Zoller Seitz. and at, at the time we were doing Paul Verhoeven, uh, I, I I went and bought from um, his shop. I, I bought the Jesus of Nazareth book that Ver- Verhoeven wrote. I bought a compendium of film criticism by bell hooks. Uh, and I forget there was another book there, but I don't remember it. So just apropos, the other day, uh, the latest thing that I ordered uh, from Mr. Zeitz's shop came in and it is gorgeous. I'm going to hold it up even though this is an audible medium. We are all on Zoom so that you guys can see it. I picked up the Dune 1984 storyboard collector's edition. Uh, and Hello.
1: Is,
2: I, I keep buying that. It is gorgeous. <laughs> like it, Matt had put out on Twitter. He's like, there's only a handful of these left in, in this present. I'm like, I'm, buying immediately. And it is just what it says. It is literally just nothing but the storyboards Uh, for Uh, his version of Dune before it kind of got mangled by editing and uh, Laurentius going in and putting his Laurentius stamp on things. Um, It's gorgeous. I, I love these kind of books that you can just keep returning to time and time again when you want a little inspiration or you just want to kind of put your mind into a different set Uh, so just a book of nothing but illustrations Uh, it's exactly what the doctor ordered like there's literally there's no commentary or anything it's just a I mean there's like a maybe like a one page intro but it's just the entire film as Lynch envisioned it with with storyboards so huge recommendation and also just a huge recommendation to obviously you know support local independent folks you know keep this stuff going um sites has done incredible stuff from I met him way back in the day when he was doing the House Next Door uh, blog, and I did a, a blogathon there um, to his role as kind of like the editor in in chief at times for RogerEbert.com for the stuff he's doing now for um, film books. It's 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 great, and that one I know all of us are Lynch fans. Uh, that book is a doozy. So recommendation number one. Recommendation number two is a TV show because I have not watched a lot of movies in the month of February. I am being very diligent about, um, marking down every film I watch on Letterboxed, Um, and, uh, it wasn't a whole lot. Uh, and I don't <laughs> want to recommend, uh, Black Panther or uh, some of the other things I saw that really just disappointed me. But one thing that I have seen that I have really enjoyed is Ryan Johnson's Poker Face. So there is a little bit of a film cant to it. This is the Murder of the Week show that he has developed in conjunction with uh, Natasha Leone, who plays Charlie Case, um, a woman who has the uncanny ability to always tell when someone is lying. She may not know what the truth is, but she always knows when someone is lying. And that kicks off a series of kind of one-and-done whodunits, uh, done very much in the vein of things like Columbo and Murder, She Wrote— guest stars up the wazoo uh it's really really good um it is structured very uniquely uh where you have the murder up front and then it goes back in time and then it's it's charlie trying to figure out you know why someone lied to her and what it means and solving the murder the whole time there is a very weak kind of through point where she's on the run from she kind of um screwed up something in las vegas and now the big bad played by ron perlman and his right hand man back. Benjamin Bratt are after her, but that doesn't matter. You don't need to know any of that. What's great about this, and where Dan and I keep um, making fun of John about, because John has not seen the show because he is in Canada and doesn't have access yet, uh, is that it is very much is a filmmaker's <laughs> TV show. So um, we were talking about uh, the third episode in particular, uh, um, Bong Bong Joon Ho um, and Okja. <laughs> that is, uh, plays a pivotal role uh, in that particular episode. Um, also, episode four, uh, because we all came together as metal folks, and for some reason, metal folks really love John Darnell of uh, the Mountain Goats. He is one of the supporting players in the fourth episode and is frankly hilarious as is John Hodgman uh, but it's 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 great it is a it is a throwback but at the same time it is very very modern Natasha Lyonne uh, has been the same age ever since she was a teenager because her voice sounds like she's 55 60 years old and she knows how to use it to its fullest I- extent here she mm-hmm. is a delight in this and it's been one of those things where I am typically not a TV guy. I'm a movie guy because I like the one and done. Now I don't have to worry about it. But this show has brought uh, has brought me much joy, much joy. So highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. It's streaming on Peacock. And if you are not a Peacock user or you are not a U.S. resident, I'm sure there are ways using a VPN and other mechanics at your disposal to be able to check it out.
0: The only thing I have to say to you about what you just said is that you said the words, for some reason, as if John Darniel didn't write the best ever death metal band out of Denton. Like, the, the, uh, and a song that ends with uh, cries of Hail Satan. I think there's a pretty... like. It's understandable reason why metalheads
2: gravitate (laughs) to him. Look, I I understand why people gravitate to him. He was also a longtime writer for Decibel Magazine and had the best uh, South Pole Dispatch on Decibel Magazine. But I I don't understand the draw to the mountain goats that other people do if you are a metalhead. It doesn't equate for me. But. Uh, as a writer, he is fantastic. We've talked about, I've, I've read his first two novels. I haven't read the, the new novel yet. They are both very good. Uh, and he is, he's outright hilarious in this episode. So, you know, good on him.
0: Yes. And I don't, and I don't think this uh, episode, which will just by default be a longer episode than usual, needs to extend itself further by turning into a, let's argue about John Darnell. Uh So this will probably be a place for us to, uh, to call it uh, for today's episode. Um, Dan, it's been an absolute uh pleasure and a treat to have you uh not only back on the podcast but writing for the website uh as well uh it uh it is it's made me really happy and of course uh we're happy to you know chat uh Cronenberg with you uh even if our choices for the actual choices for the episode (laughs) are (laughs) a bit of a mixed bag but it was uh you know it it was a fun podcast in any case uh appreciate having you back
1: I swear, you guys have to have me on and not talk about some weirdo filmmaker, which I I know that's my thing, but you know, I do like the Cohen Brothers. I'm gonna throw out
2: if you do a Cohen Brothers episode, I have to be on it.
0: <laughs> I mean, a Cohen Brothers episode feels like an inevitability at some yeah. point. So um uh,
2: as as does another filmmaker, which I think Dan, you would be perfect for because it was in your sight and sound poll, and it's one of my favorites as well. So we will we'll talk about that off episode, but I've definitely got one that I want you to be a part of as well. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm I'm here for it. Uh
0: so let let's uh let's wrap this up so I can desperately know what it is that you folks are talking about. Uh thanks so much uh for listening. Uh stay safe and uh, k- take care of each other and uh watch the movies. We'll catch you next time.
2: Bye.